0: Interested in a Catholic angle on healthcare topics? Then check out Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. You can listen and download at chausa.org slash podcast.
1: Welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the auspiciously young, perennially hip, and felicitously lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga
0: Segura, hey guys, and Zach Davis. (coughs) Are you feeling sick,
2: Zach? I'm milking this illness as long Uh, as I can. I just. i feeling uh, better though,
0: seriously.
1: I I'm am feeling I
2: am feeling better. Uh, Zach listen,
1: had strep throat last week, and no one believed that he was sick. So now he's making us feel <laughs> very guilty mm-hmm. and making us drink what Zach?
2: So uh, on tap this week we have some nice herbal tea. It's a uh, lemon and ginger, uh, and it's re- it really got me through my strep throat. And so it's just going to carry us into good health uh, for our Australia trip this week. All right. So cheers! Cheers. cheers. Thanks for finally supporting me in my illness.
1: <laughs> it is delicious tea. Thank you for sharing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who are we talking to this week, Olga?
0: This week we're talking with Destiny herndon De La Rosa. She is a pro-life feminist activist and the founder of New Wave Feminists, which is a pro-life or feminist organization she founded in 2004.
2: Yeah, and the organization is dedicated to changing the divisive language around the abortion around the abortion debate.
1: And we're talking to her. Um, The week of both the March for Life, the annual uh, March in Washington and the Women's March, um, which started back in 2017 in response to the election of Donald Trump. Um, And she has been to both and is going to both, which is I don't think there's usually a lot of overlap with those two groups. So we are going to talk to her about why she goes to both. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Uh, First story this week comes from the border, where there is a historic Catholic church that is along the border that the Trump administration is trying to seize the land of so that they can build their border wall.
2: Yeah. So La Lomita Chapel, it's a historic Catholic church in Mission, Texas, which is just 800 feet from the southern border with Mexico. And it's really at the center of this legal fight between the Trump administration and the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas.
0: And this started on October 25th when the government filed a declaration of taking motion to notify the diocese and the Bishop Daniel Flores, who has led the diocese since 2009, of its intention to survey and potentially seize two properties in Hidalgo County. Yeah. And Bishop Flores has, uh, you know, strongly protested this move. They have taken it to court
1: um, and they consider it. An infringement on their religious freedom. They they say they have people, um, they have undocumented immigrants who are part of their who go to this chapel. It's no longer an active church; it's uh, it's a religious shrine. Um, So people go there to pray, and they say that the uh, government's action building a border fence on their property would prevent people from, you know, engaging in their religion.
2: And one takeaway I had from this story was that the church has a lot of resources in particular, a lot of land and property. And often times that goes squandered, I think. But uh, this reminded me of an example from a story last year that we talked about of uh, the the Adorers of the Blood of Christ, which is a group of nuns that were that you know built this chapel on some land they owned in order to stop a gas pipeline going through their property, and so the church taking advantage of the the land holdings that it's had and had for a long time to stand up for justice, as I think exactly where we should be in in terms of these issues, and hopefully we see more of this as a strategy.
0: What's next, Ashley?
1: So this is a uh, another difficult story about sexual abuse that hits. Uh, close to home for those of us working at American Media, um, the Northeast province of the Society of Jesus uh, released the names of the clergy who have been credibly accused of sexual abuse since 1950. So that includes uh, New York uh, and the, all the ministries of the Jesuits in this area. And that includes American magazine.
2: Yeah. And so in full disclosure and being as transparent as possible there that did include one name of a of a priest who uh, at the who spent some time working at America from uh, 1989 to 1994.
1: Yeah. And this is the last um, province of the Jesuits to release the name. So now all of the U.S. Jesuits um, with abuse claims against them have been named. Uh, Those names are out there searchable. Um, And so it's a very, you know, first step, but an important step in this ongoing process of healing um, in this abuse crisis which includes the Jesuits. What's next Olga?
0: According to a new Gallup survey, Catholics are losing faith in clergy and church leaders after the second wave of the sexual abuse crisis that broke last summer. So the survey says that in 2017, nearly half of all Catholics, 49%, told pollsters that they had a high or very high opinion of the honesty and ethical standards of clergy members. Last year, that number dropped to 31%. So from 49 to 31? Yep. Over That's a big 80. drop. That's, yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is not,
1: I mean, I can't say I'm all that surprised mm-hmm. because. Most of the news of the past year has been very damning mm-hmm. of, you know, church leadership.
2: Yeah, I had a couple thoughts reading this, too. Was One is, this has got to be a tough aspect for—obviously, it's tough for the entire church, and especially survivors. But also for priests that entered seminary after 2002 um, to have sort of their credibility— attacked like this is, you know, they're atoning for the sins of their, of their forebears. Like we all are. The, the second thing I thought was, I wonder if this, if pollsters had asked this question on sort of an individual level, like, do you have less belief in the moral authority of your pastor of, of, or of your professor or of your, whatever priest, you know, sort of personally?
1: Yeah, no. Cause I, the, the, the poll didn't specifically ask about yeah. Yeah. A, a specific person. It was just like clergy in general. Um, and like we know from other studies that people tend to like like their congressperson, but think Congress is terrible. So it does make a difference in how you when you frame the question. And I know personally, like when I think about my own parish priests, I, you know, I look to them as as models of moral leadership and. Um, but it's when you zoom out and think of the church or the bishops that it's easier to have a more critical eye, I think.
2: Yeah, definitely. And um, I wonder if we're moving towards a model of church where, uh, and this happens other places in the world where, you know, your parish connection matters way more because distrust in the Vatican is skyrocketing.
1: Which could be, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing for people to be more engaged in their parish and look to see what kind of difference they can make there um, and what relationships they can um, build at that level of the church. Yeah. What's our next story, Zach?
2: So we wanted to bring this story because this is a time when we are losing trust in church leaders, and it's important to have models to look to who have done things right. And so we wanted to take this moment to mark the passing of Bishop Hausa, Joseph Hausa, who died at the age of 95 this week, um, who was the founding bishop of the Diocese of Biloxi, Mississippi.
0: He had a really incredible life. He was the first black priest to be ordained in North Carolina, and he led and integrated an all-white parish in Raleigh. Um, And he also had this really historic meeting with Pope John Paul II, where he gathered with him in New Orleans in 1987, and he talked to the pope about what it means to be a black Catholic in the United States. So he was a a really inspiring figure. And a lot of the people who knew him uh, talked about the work that he did, not just for black Catholics in this country, but also for all Catholics, you know?
2: Yeah. What's our last story, Ashley?
0: This is a fun one. Uh, the Vatican
1: has a new track team um, that includes priests, nuns, and scholars. Uh, there are over 50 people, and they hope to eventually uh, make it to the Olympics, but that they know that's a long shot. <laughs> it's it also- is.
0: <laughs> it's also really exciting because they're all. It, the group also includes two Muslim migrants, which is a really good reflection of how committed Pope Francis is to asylum seekers.
2: Yeah, and not everyone is Catholic. It's made up of people who live and work in the Vatican. Um, so I'm thinking about taking my talents to <laughs> oh my Vatican God. City to This try might and... be
1: the one <laughs> track team you could make. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> <There's I> w- <laughs> they have a pretty small pool of people to draw on.
2: <laughs> yes, so, I and you know what? I want, to, I want to go because not only I might have a chance of making the team, but also, did you see the uniforms? They're, they're, they're pretty really cool. They're pretty sick. They reminded <laughs> me of uh, Papal Ninja, our guest from episodes past. He had mm-hmm. some. He had some pretty sweet Vatican sportswear. Um, but someone in our Facebook group posted the story and asked a great question, uh, which is: If they w- somehow, some way, you know, Sister Marianne smokes the competition in the 200 meter dash, what anthem gets played when they win? I don't
1: know. I don't know. Like the. Ave Maria or something?
2: You would think, possibly, <laughs> but the Vatican, as a city-state, uh, sovereign city-state, actually has its own uh, national oh, anthem. That was There's one a of those papal. Questions
1: where you already knew the answer. You would. Yes, be... of course.
2: There's a papal. <laughs> I, 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 I do not appreciate this. <laughs> um, you, can, can
1: you can you hum the Vatican no, anthem I, for us? Uh,
2: it's uh, the only time I've ever heard it is at like an outdoor mass at the Vatican and there's okay. a lot going on there so I'm not really sure how it goes actually but you can youtube it actually we might even be able to get some transition music out of it <laughs>
0: Joining us via Skype is Destiny Herden della Rosa. She is an American pro-life activist and the founder of the pro-life organization New Wave Feminist. Welcome to Jesuitical, Destiny. Thank you so much for having me. We're very excited that you're joining us. So first question, when you founded New Wave Feminists, the pro-life movement was already pretty well established. There are a number of national and local organizations already working. So why did you decide to start New Wave?
3: You know, I think that those organizations are doing wonderful work, but I was kind of sick of showing up and being the only person with like hot pink hair. And so I thought (laughs) we need to carve out our own niche for some kind of like younger, uh, more alternative and even kind of more progressive politically um, pro-life activists. Because at the end of the day, I think our concern is that we cannot change the culture with just one, um, political party or, or even religion. Like it it has to be everybody. So we have to make sure that we're reaching out to people who don't look like us and letting them know that there is a place for you in this movement. And we want to represent you as well. So what, what are like the foundational
1: values of new wave feminists that maybe do make it a little bit different than other
3: pro-life groups? Yeah. So we, um, Subscribe to something called the consistent life ethic. And that means that we're anti death penalty, anti torture, anti war. And then we extend that into the womb by also being anti abortion. So basically, it's just a belief that human beings should be free from violence for the duration of their lifetime. And because of that, you know, we're kind of politically homeless, most of us. There's not consistency uh, on either side. And so, again, it's just this kind of niche area where we're able to represent people. Um, You know, one of the coolest things is people saying, oh my gosh, I did know you existed like i've wanted to call myself a feminist for so long but ha- thought that that meant i had to align myself with this pro abortion movement and i disagree with that and how can i get more involved you know i want to work to empower women and of course we've seen the pro life movement doing that for so long they go out of their way to empower women but they they get this kind of stereotype and narrative pushed upon them that we're anti-woman which couldn't be further from the truth
1: yeah so can you mention the term consistent life ethic which i think might be familiar to some catholics but your group isn't explicitly religious is it
3: no not at all i mean our group is i personally am agnostic we've got atheists we have wiccans we have muslims and catholics and protestants and so we we kind of run the full gamut of that which is why we're a secular organization but you know that's kind of the beauty of Of intersectional feminism and the idea that everybody's bringing their own experiences to the table and really being able to dialogue.
2: So the term consistent life ethic, I think some people in pro life circles are a little bit suspicious of it sometimes because it's sometimes used as a dodge to not care about abortion. Right. Um, What's your what's your take on that and what's your response when people might bring that to you?
3: Yeah, I mean we've definitely heard that argument that it's you know well you don't care about refugees and and you know um, the suicide rate or whatever their other particular issue is. And so why should I care about abortion? We want to flip that on its head. It should be the exact opposite. I care so passionately about abortion because I care about the human dignity of people. And that is going to extend to all of these other things. So we should be fighting for all of these issues at the same time. And I think for a long time, there's been this mentality within the pro-life movement that um, the, the ship's not big enough for all these issues. You can really only focus on one. And I found that that's really not true at all. The more active we are, we go to college campuses and speak, and we promote a lot of different volunteer and humanitarian efforts. And the more that we're going out and we're saying, "Hey, let's talk about what's going on down at the border. Let's talk about the death penalty. Let's talk about, you know, sex trafficking. All of these things are so intrinsically tied together, and people who normally wouldn't even think about the abortion issue suddenly start seeing this thread of humanity that goes through all of them. And so they're much more willing to to listen to us when it comes to talking about the humanity of Unborn child, because it's that old adage that they don't know what you care until they care that you know. And I've just found that it's allowed us to reach a whole different audience because for too long, the pro life movement, unfortunately, has been set on just laws and overturning Roe. There's a blogger, Mark Shea, who says it best that it's an issue of supply and demand. They're trying to cut off supply, but they're not necessarily addressing the demand side. And so my group really wants to focus on that. What is it that is causing women to think that they need abortion? And how can we remove those obstacles from them, and the more that we talk about that with people, it's not a matter of taking a right away, but how can society better facilitate you making nonviolent choices?
1: We're talking to you uh, before the March for Life and before the Women's March. Um, I know you've you've attended both, but I think you've described feeling kind of like an outsider at at both of them um, for different reasons. Can
3: Can you explain why that is? Yeah, you know, it's funny because. I am able to see the consistencies in both of them. It's a bunch of passionate people who really want a better world, you know, um, whether it's focused on women or women and unborn children, like there is this activist drive. And so we think it's really beautiful to be able to go to both and, and, Again, challenge both sides because when you go to the Women's March, obviously they have a very staunch um, pro choice platform and they're sponsored by Planned Parenthood. And so, as you're listening to them speak about human rights violations and the prison industrial complex, and I mean, all of these other things that we're very passionate about, we cheer along and then you have someone get up and start promoting abortion. And it's just this huge disconnect when you have a movement that's opposing violence, but then thinks violence against the weakest and most vulnerable is okay. So, then we raise up our pro-life signs. And we feel like it's really important to be a dissenting voice in the crowd, not just boycott it and not go, but be there challenging. Um, And then, you know, likewise with the March for Life, it is something that is usually viewed as a very conservative march. You know, during the rally, the last few years, we've had um, Mike Pence and President Trump this year, it's going to be Ben Shapiro. So it's kind of like...
2: These are the the, main stage speakers, sort of the keynotes. Yeah,
3: main stage. Yeah, that speak at the rallies. And so it's always frustrating to me because optics wise, when you have a bunch of people who think you're only older, white, conservative males, and then every year, those are the people kind of headlining. And I'm not saying, you know, there's there's anything wrong with that. They definitely know their audience and that's who they want to have. But we've always offered alternative kind of meetups beforehand where we've had very very diverse groups of women speaking about issues again. Uh, That are boots on the ground level type stuff, because I think a lot of us are done with waiting for the government to save us And every four to eight years, you know, policies changing and it really uh, hurting our communities. And so we want to talk to people who are doing it, who are making a difference in their communities and really highlight them.
2: I find it strange, too, because especially with the march being made up of. A ton of young people and high schoolers and college students in particular. And that's something that's always touted about the march. And it's true. I've been four times and it is always young people. But I don't think young people think super left, right, binary, like politically at that point in their lives. And so they're sort of being taught how to think about the abortion issue in a political way when all of those speakers are there from the same party.
3: Yeah, I think that's the frustrating thing, because I think the, the most dangerous thing we ever did was make abortion a partisan issue. This is a human rights issue. It's something that everybody should care about. And so when we keep just linking it to one political party that you know has some questionable other activities that people would say, OK, well, that's not whole life. That's not pro-life all the way. And it's it's kind of strictly anti-abortion. And likewise, Democrats obviously have this huge blind spot when it comes to the issue of abortion. And so I think young people are hungry for consistency and they're hungry for a message that resonates with them. And that's why we always fall back to consistent life ethic, because it's kind of the golden rule, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated and help those who need help.
2: Well, and it's something I've really appreciated about a uh, new A feminist approach to engaging with the women's march is that There are other pro-life organizations that I won't necessarily name or throw under the bus here, but that will sort of go with their cameras ready and they'll go for like five minutes, wait for someone to scream at them, film it, upload it, and send it out to all their donors looking for, you know, fundraising. Like, look at these crazy leftist Mm -hmm. liberals. They hate pro-lifers. Whereas you did experience some heckling, unwelcome, mm-hmm. but you're still going back and you're still trying to build those bridges.
3: Yeah, I think one of, the, one of the worst things the pro-life movement does is it dehumanizes others in the attempt to humanize the unborn child. Absolutely. And so that's great for fundraising. You know, here's our enemy. Give us money so we can fight against it. But you're going to lose all those people. And it goes back to that kind of fact that we stopped persuading. At some point, it just became about changing the law and cutting off, you know, supply. But we need to be actively out there persuading others to see that we have a very valid point that this is a human rights issue. And you can't do that when you're using them as fundraising fodder and, you know, ticking them off at marches. So I have found that, you know, when I go and I smile and I'm friendly and open and warm to people, I get the same thing in return. You mentioned before how you're
1: how new wave feminists try to, uh, look at the demand for abortion and try to make there be less demand. What are some of the specific like concrete things your group does or that other groups are doing to do that?
3: I think, you know, putting together it's it's 2019, we have got to get a thorough database of all of the resources available to women because they're great resources. But if nobody knows how to access them, then obviously that's going to be a problem. And I remember a couple years ago actually being in a bathroom stall and one of my daughters was there and we had just shopped all day and I was really frustrated with her and I was kind of like reprimanding her as I was washing her hands in the sink. And all of a sudden I looked behind me and I saw in in the stall, the door was closed, but there was a pregnancy test on the floor of this Walmart bathroom. And I thought, oh my gosh, like you're not in a good place if you're taking a pregnancy test in a Walmart bathroom stall. And you know, due to social etiquette, it's not like I can knock on the door (laughs) or offer this woman any help or assistance. And I remember in that moment thinking, I wish I just had a card like that. I could slip under the door that just had a website with all of the information available to her, because whether it's maternity homes or WIC offices, Medicaid offices, pregnancy resource centers, places she can get clothes and diapers and all, all the different services that I hold in my head constantly, it's really hard. um, to give all that information to somebody because unfortunately we've kind of compartmentalized a lot. Like most cities will know their resources. And so we're trying to spread the word in college cities and say, okay, you guys need to know what's around you because whether it's in the bathroom at a Walmart or a woman standing behind you in line at Target and you can tell she's been crying and she's holding a pregnancy test, you become more empowered to help and empower her when you know what those resources look like.
2: You've addressed a lot of like great things about dialogue and treating People who disagree with you compassion, but I think for at least for me, I was president of my pro life group at Loyola Chicago, and something we tried really hard to do was talk to st- like other students about abortion, and that is a terrifying thing um, because there's such a stigma around talking about it. Um, and even still, I get I sort of tense up a little bit having you know been in the movement for a while. What are some like practical steps you have for people who are also also maybe? tense up when the word abortion comes up and that might be pro-life and might not know how to talk about or it might be pro-choice and might not know how to talk about this issue
3: you know, one of the things that I always tell college kids is like just don't be weird. Be that cool normal person that they would come to and say, Hey, where do you get your haircut? Or, you know, what's a good store around here? Like, if they would ask you advice for other stuff, then those are the people who are more inclined to come and talk to you about this very sensitive issue. But anytime you're speaking to someone, I always say you've got to address them as if abortion is part of their story or someone they love story. So you don't go in with guns blazing and you know, abortion's murder or something like that. Like, because there's a very very good chance that their mother, their aunt, their best friend could have had an abortion. Maybe they've had an abortion. And so we always have to be speaking very compassionately. And it helps to understand the systemic issues that lead to abortion. You know, the fact that poverty is a big part of it. Um, When I was in high school, I actually got pregnant with my son when I was 16 years old. And my mother had gotten pregnant with me at 19. And so I had always been, you know, theoretically pro-life, like in my mind, I always knew there was a chance that I could have been aborted myself. So I'll always be pro-life. But when it actually happened to me, it's a terrifying experience. Even if you know that, you know, abortion is not an option, you still have myriad other choices and decisions you have to make and you have to grow up really, really fast. And so I remember going back. From summer break. And by this point I was five months pregnant and I had the little pooch and, um, a girl walks up to me and she said, Oh, I was pregnant over the summer too. And when she said that, I looked down and she didn't have the little pooch. And so I immediately, I think a part of me really, um, felt kindred to the, the unborn child. And I was so angry at her. I said, you killed your child and you're, you're proud of yourself. You're bragging about it. That's not at all what she was doing. She was trying to find someone who knew that experience and had been through it too. And so she cursed at me and and stormed off. And that night, I remember going home and telling my mom and thinking my mom is going to be so proud of me for standing up, you know, for our pre life beliefs. And it was the exact opposite. My mom said, you know, you're not a safe person. She'll never come talk to you again. She'll probably have her next abortion in your honor. Like you more than anybody know what it's like to be a scared teenager. And we don't know what she was up against. Maybe her parents were going to kick her out of her home. Maybe she didn't have health insurance. Like we don't even know. And so the next day I went back to school and in the hilarious way the universe works, a completely different girl comes up to me and says an almost identical thing. And all I knew was what not to say, but I hadn't like devised it. (laughs) (laughs) So with the second girl, I said, how far along were you? And she kind of looks off. She's like, I don't know, about like 12 weeks or something. And I'm literally sitting there at the cafeteria table reading what to expect when you're expecting. And I'm getting the babysitter email updates like, your baby's the size of a kumquat. And this is what it can do now. And I rattled off some facts that to this day, I don't even remember what I said. It was fingernails and toenails, something like that. And she slammed her hands on the table and swore at me as well and then stormed off. And I'm like, I'm amazing at this. I should clearly become a pro-life activist. (laughs) Um, when I got home that night and compared these two different interactions, I realized one was just condemning and judgmental. That's all it was. The second one was giving a woman information that I think she should have had before she ever walked through the doors of an abortion clinic. And as a feminist, it bothered me so much to know that there is this active kind of movement to stop women from seeing sonograms or understanding what abortion truly is, what the procedure is, what fetal development is happening along the way. And I think that's why at our or new wave feminists. We say we're pro-woman, we're pro-life, we're pro-education. We want to make sure that women are empowered and they know what all of their options are, what all of these procedures look like. You know, we're, we're in the age of the internet where people can access the information, but a lot of times when it comes to abortion, they don't want to access it. You know, ignorance is bliss to some degree. And so we really want to be educating people before they even get to the point where that decision's on the table.
0: So, Destiny, thank you so much for chatting with us. This was super insightful. And I know our listeners are going to love hearing your interview. Um, But we've got one final question for you. If you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or not Catholic, who would it be and why?
3: Oh, my goodness. This is hard because I'm not Catholic, so I don't even know what it takes (laughs) to get canonized.
2: Perfect. (laughs) This leads to the best answers.
3: (laughs) The best answers? Yeah. Oh, you're not going to like this. I think I'm going to go with David Sedaris just because he's one of my favorite human beings in the world.
2: Tell us us why David Sedaris should be uh, canonized.
3: So he's a humor essayist and he brings me so much joy that I will be reading his essays. This is my form of self-care is just laughing. And so I will read his essays to the point where I'm laughing so hard. I start to wonder if I'm actually crying. I'm like, am I having a...
1: (laughs) (laughs) What's your (laughs) favorite (laughs) essay?
3: (laughs) Oh, no, I can't say that on the uh, podcast. It's so <laughs> funny, though. Oh, my gosh. It's just if you haven't read a short story by David Sedaris, you have to. All
2: right. St. David Sedaris. <laughs> awesome.
3: Thank Dest- you so much for talking Yeah, with us. good luck this weekend. Yeah, good luck. Where can people learn more about New Wave Feminists? Definitely on our Facebook page. Okay. So New Wave Feminists uh, on Facebook and then newwavefeminists.com. All right. Good luck at the march. Good luck. Thank you. Bye. Thanks.
2: Bye, Destiny. <laughs>
1: it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have, Zach?
2: We just again wanted to thank the podcast of the Catholic Health Association for sponsoring this episode. Uh, if you're looking for Catholic uh, perspectives on healthcare issues, you can listen and download the podcast at chausa.org podcast.
0: And if you're interested in attending Solidarity on Tap events, there's one at America January 23rd, 7 to 9 p.m. on racial justice and equality. And
1: that is America Media, the headquarters in New York, not just the country
2: country. (laughs) it is also in the country
1: (laughs) but it is in manhattan uh at seven to nine and it should be a great event we won't be there because we will be in australia but everyone else who's in the new york area should attend and if you're in san diego on january 29th there is an event on homelessness in north county at booze brothers brewery from seven to nine so again that's january 29th in san diego at the Booze Brothers Brewery.
2: And this is a good time to mention that we will not be in your podcast feeds for a couple weeks because we are going to Australia this uh, this week and we'll be gone for a, a while. You can follow us on, uh, we're going to be posting on our Patreon Lens account. So if you're looking for some snaps of... Uh, Adelaide's World Youth Day Festival and the people we're meeting and uh, all the cool things we're doing. We're really excited about that. You can follow us on Lens on Patreon. You can also find out more at Adelaide's uh, Youth Office's website, which is www.kathyouthadelaide.org.au.
1: All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga?
0: This week, I've got a consolation. I was at church service at my church's service on sunday and the pastor did this really weird thing it was so uncomfortable where she was like okay everyone i want you to remember your baptism or if you haven't been baptized just imagine yourself getting baptized and then everyone had to walk to the front of the church and look her in the eye as she said you are beloved creature of god and i was like this is really weird it makes me feel uncomfortable this eye contact as a new yorker this is the last thing i want to do um But once I was like, okay, no, just get into the into like the moment, um, I realized that it was really beautiful to just have someone say that. So often you see that in Scripture, you read that somewhere and it kind of goes over your head. But I really just took that, internalized that and just reminded myself like, oh, you really are this great creature that God created, because I think especially when like new year's resolutions and working out i can be so hard on myself and start pointing out flaws especially as a woman where you're just like you have to look a certain way or feel a certain way um and just hearing that from the pastor i was like you know what you are beautiful and you are loved um so that was my consolation
2: you are a beloved creature of god olga
0: (laughs) thank you was that (laughs) that uncomfortable it's not it that was actually way more (laughs) uncomfortable than when my pastor did it but i appreciate that you wanted to to comfort me so thank you you're
2: welcome (laughs) What do you have, Zach? Uh, this week I've got a, something between a consolation and a desolation, um, as they often are. Uh, I, as I've told everyone within earshot and mentioned on the front of the show, I was sick last week. Um, that's my way of coping, is just telling everyone about it. Not, I'm not a silent sufferer. Um, but uh, I was still trying to stay engaged in my prayer life a little bit, so there would be times where you know, at mass over the, or over the weekend or earlier this week where I'd be like, okay, you know, where are you God? And I was able to sort of like list different places where I knew God was acting in my life. So like people are caring for me when I'm ill. Uh, I have this great uh, church community. I have a great uh, group of young men that meet with me in the mornings before work at my parish. But for some reason I was like, I, I felt exhausted. I don't know. I was just tired from being sick. And so I felt like there was more work I had to do. I was listening to this part of myself that says, that's not enough. What else is there? What else is there? What else is there? And even though I'm maybe naming off these places where God is working in my life, listening to the part of the the spirit that says, that's not enough. What? Dig deeper. What else is there? That was the desolating experience. Mm-hmm. The thing that I, I think stopped me from it being a total huge desolation was like, all right, I'm just going to work this out when I talk to someone about it. Um, and so that in talking to, father Eric about it uh, really did sort of bring me, bring me, you know, that is enough. That's all you, you're okay. To, you're allowed to be tired. Um, and you know, that is enough for God. So that is my desolation to consolation. You are this enough
1: week. and a beloved child of God, Zach.
2: Thank you, Ashley. <laughs> and thank you, Olga. I heard you say it with your eyes. You saw it in my eyes. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> Good. What do you have, Ashley? Uh, I have a consolation. Uh, so my best friend, Laura got married this past weekend. Um, And in the weeks leading up to it, I was kind of more focused on like the sadness that came with like my best friend getting married because you are kind of like having to share your best friend um, with someone else who is now going to be their partner for life. But then I was I was writing my toast for the speech and I kind of as I was writing it realized that I've been learning for like my entire 28 and a half years on this planet how to share my best friend. Um, Because like when you're little, you have one and that's all you need and you do everything together. But then when you get older, like people like your siblings and your parents actually become your close friends. Uh, Like I've thought about like her little brother that we used to just like make cry by not letting him play with. Us. And now, like, they, like, he's on the West Coast and, like, they have such a, an important friendship. Um, and uh, through that, like, I've had all these people enrich my life. And, like, so that realization of, like, love is not, like, this scarce resource that, like, you have to, like, cling to um, made me, like, think about God's love in that way. Because, um, you know, we, like, hear, like, God loves infinitely. But what that means concretely is that, yeah, love does not get diminished when you share it with more people. And she can be my best friend and her new husband's best friend and her mom's best friend. And we're all better for it. And that's the way God loves us as well. So it was a good it's it good amazing. realization.
2: It's always great when your uh bridesmaid <laughs> or your maid of honor speech doubles as a consolation. <laughs> yeah. That's 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 not bad. Prime
1: content. <laughs> yes.
2: No, that's a great realization, Ashley. it was good. All right, get us out of here.
1: Okay, Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Michelle Hone. Jesuit Formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering by Kieran Freeman. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. And finally, send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis, and we will see you when we're back from Australia.